0: Sassy Speculum, Sassy Speculum, Sassy Speculum, you're listening to the Sassy Speculum. Hello Sassy Speculumites, welcome back to the Sassy Speculum. I am so excited to be back with all of you discussing all things women's health. I needed to take um, a little bit of a hiatus for a few weeks, as I'm sure you've noticed. It's been a hot minute since my last episode. Thanks for continuing to stick by and coming back for more now that I'm back. Woo! Um, I hope that everybody had an amazing holiday, whatever it is that you celebrate, and also Happy New Year's. Hopefully 2023 will just continue getting better and better as we go. So far, no complaints yet. My family celebrates both Hanukkah and Christmas, which is so much fun, and it usually makes the holiday spirit last a little bit longer. Most years we have Hanukkah, and then a few days or weeks later we'll have Christmas, which is preferred for us, um, but because Jewish holidays operate on the lunar calendar instead of the Gregorian calendar, Jewish holidays move around all the time, and this year Hanukkah went right through Christmas, with Christmas Day also being the last day of Hanukkah, which has its perks, but it's also always fun to have the holidays spread out a little bit more. So I hope whether you celebrate Christmas, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, Three Kings Day, Solstice, or something else, or nothing at all, that you had a absolutely wonderful time doing just that. Funny enough, we had a really, really fun Hanukkah and Christmas, and then the day after Christmas, we lost power for over 30 hours during one of the coldest weeks that we've had all year, and that's the reason why this episode being even later than I intended it to be. When I decided that it was time to get back to researching and writing the episode, the world said, nope, you need more relaxing hiatus time, so I listened, and here we are. Anyways, enough of me just talking about myself and my time off. Um, let's get back to the Sassy Speculum. As always, please rate and review the podcast if you haven't already. This makes it much more possible for people outside of my regular listeners to find the podcast. I appreciate it already, and thank you to those of you who have done it, and thank you to those those of you who are going to do it. Um, One thing that I'm really, really excited about is that I made Sassy Speculum swag. As of right now, there are two different t-shirt designs possible, one with just my Sassy Speculum logo, and another with a smart-looking uterus that says Sassy Speculum made me of a genius, which all of you obviously are now that you've listened to 10 episodes of me blobbing. Also, can you guys believe that I made it to 10 episodes? I truly expected to do one or two and then be done with this, but it's you guys that have kept me going, and I really enjoy it, so thank you so much. Thank you for all of your support. Every time I hear from you guys, it means so much to me, and it's really honestly what has kept this going this long and hopefully for longer um anyways you guys can get my t-shirts on my website beatingheartdoula.com or on my etsy store which is beating heart herbs check them out and if those do well then you can probably expect more items to come because it's really fun to create vagina-centric swag <laughs> okay so anywho's now to uh, what this episode is actually about I've decided to split this episode into a two-parter because there's so much information and it would be better to put it into digestible chunks instead of inundating you with way too much information at once. And today we're talking about sexually transmitted infections, or STIs for short, or if you went to school before 2015-ish, um, they're also called STDs. But they're the same thing, just better terminology because an infection is the first step of a disease. This is when the bacteria, the viruses, or other microbes enter your body and they begin to multiply. A disease occurs when the cells of your body have actually physically been damaged, perhaps by an infection. And with most, most STIs, they are super treatable and they don't often lead to any long-term problems or cells being physically damaged. Of course, there are also non-treatable STIs and ones that do lead to lifelong problems, and we will get there, of course. But to start us off, I wanna do an overarching picture of STIs, what's out there, what we're doing about it, why it's so prevalent, reemergence of infections that we thought were long gone, and more. After the basic, what is an STI education? I will dive into the specific STIs and their symptom picture, different types of them, different um, long-term sequelae, treatment, and more. Now, I know that we've all had high school health class, and all of our educations were a little to a lot different, and our teachers maybe had different priorities when they were teaching us health. I went to a very, very lax and hippie school where the teachers were super open um, when talking about sex, and there's still a ton of information that I wasn't taught. I actually considered not doing this episode at all because I was like, everybody already knows this stuff already. It's common knowledge. And then I sat and I thought about what I actually learned in high school versus what I've learned in medical school, versus what people probably learned at literally any school that was slightly less hippy-dippy than mine, and decided that it's actually probably not common knowledge, but it sure as heck needs to be. So while you may be going into this episode with the mindset that you know everything already, and you should just go listen to something better, just wait, because you might be surprised, and something you learned today might save yours, your daughter's, or someone you know's life. All of my basic information is taken from either World Health Organization or the Center for Disease Control. So these statistics are as up-to-date as possible, and if you're someone who doesn't believe the CDC or thinks that they're out to get us, then you kindly can press pause and go listen to something better instead of sending me hate comments. I have never once had a problem with the CDC, and I don't think that they have a problem with me, and I believe that science is science, so I trust their information. I know that I spoke a little bit in the UTI episode about how things are passed around during sex, but I'll explain that again now for those of you who either skipped over that episode or listened to it quite a while ago. When two people, no matter their gender, are engaging in sexual contact, there is a lot of skin smushing against skin. And just like when you shake somebody's hand, whatever is on their hand is also now on your hand. And we all have about 1.5 trillion bacterias that live on our skin at all times, especially in warm areas that easily become damp. One can have tens of millions of microbes on every square centimeter of skin. And the vulva produces quite a bit of sweat, so when two people are mashing their warm, damp areas together, there's quite a bit of bacteria sharing. Scientists have actually found more than 30 different species of bacteria, viruses, and parasites that are transmitted through sexual contact, including vaginal, anal, and oral sex, and those are really just the bad guys, not counting the beneficial bacteria that we all need on our skin. So no matter what, what is on your body will soon be on your partner's body, and vice versa if there's banging in your near future. Not that that should scare you out of blinking by any means, but it should encourage you to use protection as needed but you do you, boo, and go get that boo. So there are eight main pathogens that are linked to the highest incidence of STIs, of which four are currently curable. The curable STIs are syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas. The four incurable ones are hepatitis B, herpes simplex virus, HIV, and HPV. Most of those you've probably heard of, I remember the first time I heard about trichomonas, or trich as I'll be calling it from here on out. I was shocked that it was a legit and common STI, and I was hearing about it for the first time at like 24 years old. Hepatitis also is one that people don't often think of as a sexually transmitted infection. There are multiple different types of hepatitis, and not all of them are sexually transmitted, but we'll get there when we get there. When I was in high school and college, I didn't really think STIs or... I think that they were called STDs back then. I didn't think that they were that prevalent. I thought it was way easier to get pregnant than it was to get an STI. And while that is apparently a very difficult statistic to nail down, roughly 385,000 babies are born every day, and more than 1 million STIs are acquired every day. So you can do that math. Anyways, I thought the STIs were pretty rare, but turns out, yeah, there are 1 million new people daily who acquire an STI. That is so many people that it shocks me. In 2020, which yes, I admit was a pretty year, so of course these statistics are also going to sound pretty crappy, but 374 million new infections occurred with one of four of the most common STIs. Chlamydia had 129 million, making it our most popular bacterial infection. Gonorrhea had 82 million. Syphilis had 7.1 million, and TRIC had 156 million, making that one our most popular viral infection. STIs are really quite prevalent, and just saying a prayer and jumping into bed with your newest one-night stand, unprotected, is really, really not wise. You gotta glove up to love up. With the world the way that it is right now, this probably comes to no surprise to many of you, but there are also emerging outbreaks of new infections that can be acquired sexually. We've all been scared about monkeypox becoming the new COVID, but this is one of the newly emerged diseases. Also on our list are the two bacterial Shigella sanai and Neisseria meningitis, as well as Ebola and Zika. Shigella is a gastrointestinal infection that leads to severe, possibly bloody diarrhea, which is typically self-limiting, meaning that it will go away on its own. But antibiotics may be necessary in some of the population. And unfortunately, it is becoming antibiotic resistant, which means that we eventually won't have medications available to treat the people who need the antibiotic treatment. The second bacteria I mentioned, Neisseria meningitidis, is the bacteria that causes different meningitis strains, sepsis, and actually other STIs as well. The diseases that are caused by this bacteria are severe, and they're often fatal. In the past couple of years, this bacteria has been found to be replicating itself to look like other bacteria and cause similar symptoms related to those bacteria. For example, in 2016, over 100 heterosexual men in Columbus, Ohio, reported to their doctor with painful urination. This is usually a very common sign of gonorrhea, and it was assumed to be just a mass infection of gonorrhea, and it was treated as such. Turns out, however, that the infection was due to meningitis bacterium shedding their outer coat and genetically changing themselves to look like gonorrhea bacteria. So not only are these buggers super deadly, but they're also super smart, which is super scary. In terms of infections re-emerging, syphilis has actually started inching its way back up in popularity. In 2019, there were 129,800 cases of syphilis in the U.S., which is double what it was five years prior to that, and it jumped to 133,945 in 2020. And what we'll discuss in part two of our STI chat, syphilis can very, very easily be transmitted to a fetus if a pregnant woman is infected and untreated, which results in a 40% chance of infant death. In that same study that found the doubling numbers of syphilis infections, the amount of babies born with syphilis quadrupled to 1,870, and in 2020, that number has had already increased to 2,148 babies, which totally, totally sucks, as syphilis can very easily be treated even while you're pregnant. These case counts are the highest that they've been since 1994, and we are likely to continue to see a rise in the 2021 reports and the 2022 reports, which have yet to be finalized. There is also a new re-emergence of lymphogranuloma venereum, which is caused by a particular strain of chlamydia bacteria. It is more commonly diagnosed in men, but probably affects both sexes equally. Prognosis is fairly good as long as it is treated early, and the complications typically only arise if it's left untreated, but can lead to the death and rupture of lymph nodes, a thickening of your anogenital area, strictures or fistula of the anus, which would mean an infected tunnel between your butthole and skin. That is different than the natural tunnel that's already there. And it can even cause elephantiasis of the genital organs, which means your genitals blow up as if you were the size of an elephant. Look it up if you want to see something super unfortunate. Basically, It sucks that this is re-emerging in popularity, and hopefully we can nip it in the bud before it becomes one of our top new STIs. Continuing on with our basic STI knowledge, STIs are a major public health concern in both the resource-rich and the limited settings. The United States actually has the highest rates of curable STIs within the developed world, And the cost to the U.S. healthcare system is $15.9 billion, excluding HIV costs. The highest rates of infection occur in younger people. Teens between the ages of 15 to 24 represent 50% of all new STIs, even though this age demographic only makes up 27% of the sexually active population. African Americans, especially females, are the most heavily affected with significant racial disparity for gonorrhea, chlamydia, and syphilis. The overall complications of STIs are infertility and ectopic pregnancies, chronic pelvic pain, chronic infection, complications with pregnancy, including miscarriages, stillbirth, chorioamnionitis, which is an infection with subsequent inflammation in the amniotic fluid, placenta, fetus, fetal membranes, or the uterus. STIs can also cause preterm birth, low birth weights, neonatal infections, increase your chance for cancers and also other STIs, and of course cause psychological distress. So, how do we prevent STIs? Well, some of you probably got the abstinence is the only way to ensure safety talk from your high school teachers. And well, yes, abstinence is the only way to for sure avoid getting pregnant, you can still get an STI without having penetrative sex. When used correctly and consistently, condoms are one of the most effective methods against STIs. However, they don't offer protection for STIs that cause extragenital ulcers, like genital herpes, syphilis, something called chancroid if they spread away from the penis. They also don't protect against pubic lice. Basically, if you're trying to ward off getting infections that live inside of another human's body— condoms are rad. If you're trying to ward off getting infections from crotch skin or pubic hair, condoms won't do squat because condoms can only protect what's on the penis itself and what comes out of said penis. Not saying at all that you shouldn't use a condom if having sex with a male-bodied partner. Just be aware of what they can and cannot protect you from. And to double back since I didn't explain this earlier, chancroid is a bacterial infection caused by Haemophilus ducrae, it causes a soft chancre, also known as an ulcer, that is painful and red and will leak pus, similar to the chancre of syphilis, but those are generally not painful, but we will get there later. Outside of condoms, there are two highly effective vaccines available for two of the viral STIs for hepatitis B and HPV, also known as human papillomavirus, virus. There is still research going on to develop vaccines against genital herpes and also HIV, with many in clinical development. There's also apparently evidence that the meningitis vaccine can provide cross-protection against gonorrhea, which is pretty cool. As far as treatment goes, chlamydia, gonorrhea, syphilis, and TRIC are generally curable with a single dose of antibiotics, Herpes and HIV have antiviral treatments that can change up the course of the disease, but they are not curable. There is no known cure for either of those diseases. For hepatitis B, antivirals can also help fight the virus and slow down damage to the liver to avoid rapid progression of long-term complications due to the hepatitis. Also, expedited partner therapy, also known as EPT, is an amazing clinical practice where doctors can prescribe antibiotics to the partners of patients diagnosed with chlamydia or gonorrhea without having to see the patient first. This cuts down on transmission, reinfection, and asymptomatic presentations going untreated. It is currently legalized in 46 of the states and is considered potentially allowable where it is subject to additional actions or policies in the following four states— South Dakota, Kansas, Oklahoma, and Alabama, and also in Puerto Rico and Guam. There are no states in America that currently prohibit EPT, so there is one cool thing that our country has done for sexual rights. This means if your partner is diagnosed with gonorrhea or chlamydia and you recently had unprotected sex with them, they can request for you to receive EPT without you having to notify your doctor or have this in your medical chart and also vice versa. And on that positive note, let's move on to talking about individual infections and diseases. I'm going to start with a big one just so we can get it done and over with. Let's talk about herpes. There are multiple different strains of herpes, some of which you've probably heard of. The two main sexually transmitted herpes infections are HSV1 and HSV2. That's herpes simplex virus 1 and 2. Both of these are super common infections that will stay in the body for life. It's spread between two people from skin-to-skin contact with infected areas, often during vaginal, oral, or anal sex, as well as kissing. Both one and two can cause sores to pop up on or around your vulva, vagina, cervix, anus, penis, scrotum, butt, inner thighs, lips, mouth, throat, and even your eyes, although this part is rare, However, HSV-1 is most common on the lips, mouth, or throat. This is the virus that is the cause of cold sores. HSV-1 actually also now accounts for 40% of primary genital herpes due to the increase in popularity of oral sex. HSV-2 generally affects the genital area only. Both of the strains prefer to live in their ideal area, one in and around the mouth and two in and around the genitals but it is possible for the two to swap places. For example, you can get HSV-1 on your genitals if someone with a cold sore gives you oral sex, and you can get HSV-2 on your mouth if you give oral sex to someone with HSV-2 on their genitals. So the two are fairly interchangeable, although they do prefer to live in their natural homes. There are three different types of the infection, and this applies to both one and two. The primary infection, this is the first time a patient is infected without previously being exposed. The non primary, first episode, is the acquisition of either infection in a patient who has already been exposed in the past. And the third is a recurrent infection. This refers to the reactivation of the virus in someone who has already been diagnosed. All of these types can be either symptomatic or asymptomatic meaning you may or may not get open sores at any time during the infection. The first primary episode is usually the worst and can even include whole-body flu-like symptoms like fever, fatigue, nausea, body aches, and headache. Usually during the first episode, there will be multiple painful lesions that itch. They can ulcerate and sometimes can cause painful urination if they're on the genitals. The non-primary infection that comes next is associated with fewer lesions, less whole body symptoms, because your body has already come into contact with the virus, so your immune system is able to fight it off better this time. Then the recurrent herpes infections are milder and shorter in duration and are caused by a reactivation of the latent virus and not an actual reinfection. In this recurrent stage, there is usually what's called a prodrome, where before the outbreak happens, you'll feel itching, numbness, or pain in the area. The things that can trigger a recurrent outbreak are local traumas, prolonged stress, systemic stress to the body like a fever or other kind of infection, possibly friction from sex, lack of sleep, specific foods, and certain times in the menstrual cycle as well. At current time, the CDC estimates there are 572,000 new cases of genital herpes in the U.S. every year, and 50 to 80% of U.S. adults have oral herpes, with about 90% of adults being exposed to it at some point in their life before age 50. Most oral herpes infections are acquired during childhood, actually. Most people are completely unaware that they have the infection within their system, which is what has caused this virus to run so rampant around our world. Typically, when we get cold sores, we just assume that they're from eating too much candy around Halloween. And yes, sour candy does definitely erode your gums. I can speak to that personally, as I'm a huge lover of shoving lots of sour candy in my mouth at all times. But your average cold sore that you can't quite pin down the timing of your candy binge or remember cutting your mouth open on a sharp corner of pizza crust it's typically from herpes virus. And that's okay, because as I said, 50 to 80% of us have it, and 90% of us have been exposed to it. So knowledge is power here, because now you know. If you feel a weird inkling in your mouth, don't put your mouth on someone else's mouth or someone else's genitals. Easy peasy. So if everyone has it, then what's really the big deal? A strong association has been found between HSV-2 which is the classically genital herpes, and HIV infection. A 2019 WHO study found that almost 30% of newly sexually acquired HIV infections were likely attributable to an HSV2 infection. People living with HSV2 infections are at least three times more likely to become infected with HIV if they are exposed. This is because genital herpes leads to inflammation, and small breaks in the genital and anal skin, which can make it much easier for the HIV to get in and cause an infection. As I mentioned previously, there is no cure for herpes because it is a latent virus. This means that the virus remains present in the body at all times, but it's kind of sleeping for a while without producing more virus. While it's sleeping, it doesn't cause noticeable symptoms, And there can be a large window before the virus becomes active and causes symptoms again. There are over a 100 different herpes viruses that all act in the same latent manner. HSV3 is the virus that causes chickenpox and shingles. HSV4 causes Epstein-Barr virus, also known as mononucleosis or mono. This virus is also being proven to be involved in certain cancers like nasopharyngeal cancer, Burkitt lymphomas, and Hodgkin lymphomas. Many people have heard that mono can reactivate in the body later in life and can infect people who haven't been previously exposed to it, but the first person usually doesn't experience symptoms. Certain people, myself included, who had a really, really bad first case of mono can have the mono reactivate and actually cause symptoms to themselves as well as expose others at any point in time. This last year I had this happen three times due to the stress of med school and some personal stressors outside of school as well. There have also been studies to show a connection between reactivated mono and a dramatically increased likelihood of developing multiple sclerosis, 32 times more likely in fact. HSV-5 is the cause of a similar virus to EBV called cytomegalovirus, and HSV-6 and 7 are the cause of a very common childhood infection called roseola and phantom. All of these herpes and other viral infections, just like COVID, have the possibility of causing a long-haul viral infection. These chronic viral infections are often the underlying cause of disorders like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia complex regional pain syndrome, etc. etc. The list could truly go on and on. The body is basically tired of having to fight a virus regularly and develops other methods to try and get your attention that something in the body needs addressing. This is one of the biggest difference between naturopathic and allopathic medicine. Allopathic doctors or medical doctors are trained to believe that pain in the body is wrong and that the body has failed to repair itself. Allopathic medicine comes in to save the day and it tries to interrupt, numb, or interfere with that pain signal through pharmaceuticals. Naturopaths are trained to believe that the body is intelligent and that it knows what it's doing. It's governed by a central nervous system that is capable of healing even the most horrific of injuries or conditions if it's able to function correctly. Pain is not something that is wrong or a mistake that should be numbed. It's a true cry for help from the body for you to pay more attention to its nervous system. Okay, now I realize that I've gotten off onto a super big tangent, but I also think that that was equally important to understand, as STIs are. So I will get off my soapbox now and continue talking about ways to make your vulva fall off. Let's move on from the herp to chlamydia. Chlamydia is the most common bacterial sexually transmitted organism in the U.S., And also the most common cause of inflammation in the urethra in men and inflammation of the cervix in women. The majority of women who are infected with chlamydia will be asymptomatic, while one-third of them will have symptoms. The most common symptom is the inflammation of the cervix, called cervicitis, which you obviously cannot see with your own eyes but you will also have discharge of both mucus and pus coming from the cervix, which could be seen on your underwear or in the toilet. This discharge is usually yellow or green in color. When your doctor examines your cervix, it will appear to them as red, full, and inflamed, and what we call friable. This means that it bleeds really easily when touched. Other symptoms could include pain with urination, frequent urination, inflammation of the endometrium or inner lining of the uterus, pink eye, and pelvic inflammatory disease, or PID. PID is an infection of the reproductive organs, and the signs can be pretty subtle to mild, with some women being completely asymptomatic. You may not even realize that you have PID until you can't get pregnant, or you get diagnosed with chronic pelvic pain. If symptomatic, the symptoms can include pain in your lower abdomen, fever, once again an unusual discharge with a bad odor, pain or bleeding with sex, burning when you urinate, or bleeding between periods. PID is treatable, just as chlamydia is treatable, and one often treats for gonorrhea in conjunction when treating for chlamydia. The two infections like to ride together, and gonorrhea is the second most common reported communicable disease in the U.S., and is caused by Neisseria gonorrhea bacterium. Gonorrhea does look very similar to chlamydia, and is often asymptomatic, between 50-70%, to and when it is symptomatic, it manifests in a very similar fashion, with vaginal discharge, itching, and pain with urination. The most common sign of infection for gonorrhea is also the cervix, meaning it can also look red, full, and inflamed and friable to the doctor's eye. And PID can also be a complication with this STI as well, occurring in 10-20% to of uncomplicated gonorrhea due to the asymptomaticness of gonorrhea. PID may actually be the first presenting complaint. Moral of the gonorrhea story... Gonorrhea and chlamydia are like half-sisters. Very, very similar, but come from a different dad, which is the different species of bacteria in this example. And both can lead to infertility. One of the main differences is the complications. As mentioned, both can cause PID. Gonorrhea can cause disseminated gonococcal infection. This is when the gonorrhea infection spreads to the blood, which can then lead to arthritis, inflammation of the tendon sheaths, And dermatitis. This can be life threatening. Chlamydia, on the other hand, can cause reactive arthritis, also known as Ryder's syndrome. This is most commonly seen in men, but could also happen in women. How you remember this one is can't see, can't pee, can't dance with me, because the patient will have pink eye, inflammation of the urethra, and arthritis. This syndrome is also often the first sign of acquiring HIV, which brings us to our next topic. Human immunodeficiency virus, or HIV. This is the big scary that we learn about in school, but honestly, I don't really remember learning that much about it pre-med school. I, of course, remember in fifth grade when they put all the girl fifth graders in one room and all the boys in another, and we had one day of puberty talk and sex education, if you can call it that in fifth grade. And I remember learning about it in middle and high school health classes, but Either details weren't really gone into that much or nothing about it really stuck. My strongest memory is from middle school when a woman with AIDS came in to speak to our class about her experience and she brought in a one liter Nalgene bottle that was full to the brim of pills. And she said that's how many pills she had to take in one day just to stay alive. Now, I honestly don't know if that is still true in 2023. But that scared me enough to plan to just never get HIV or AIDS, which so far I've succeeded with that goal, thank goodness. Nowadays, being diagnosed with HIV is not a death sentence. It alters your life dramatically, but many, many people are surviving and living every day with HIV, and you wouldn't even know it. At the end of 2020, there were an estimated 1,070,604 people aged 13 or older living with HIV in the U.S., including 158,500 people who had yet to be diagnosed. And there were 37.7 million people worldwide living with HIV. So HIV is still a very, very prevalent virus. But what is it? And also, what is AIDS? Human immunodeficiency virus. It's a virus that directly attacks your immune system. Because your immune system is being attacked, it makes you're much more vulnerable to other infections and diseases, making you what is called immunocompromised. This virus attacks specifically the CD4 cells, effectively destroying them. CD4 cells, also known as helper T cells, are around to help fight infection by essentially triggering the immune system to destroy viruses, bacteria, and other germs that enter into your body. And those germs could potentially make you sick, which is why we want to destroy them. So, you can imagine, without these cells helping out around the body, it would be very easy for an infection to run rampant in the body and make someone very sick. HIV is spread through bodily fluids, most commonly through unprotected sex, or through sharing needles for drug use. There was always the question of getting HIV from a toilet seat. This is super, super unlikely, like less than a .01% chance. In order for this to happen, someone with HIV would have to get blood on the toilet seat and you would have to have a micro cut on your butt exactly in the location that the blood is on the seat and you would have to sit down on that blood within literal seconds of them bleeding. HIV is a very fragile virus outside of the body and it dies within seconds when exposed to light and air. So Unless you're popping a squat immediately after someone and sitting on their still wet blood and cutting open your butt on other things, you can't get HIV from a toilet seat at all, period, no questions. Just like the herpes virus, once you get it, it stays in your body forever, and there is no way to cure the body of the infection. AIDS, on the other hand, acquired immunodeficiency syndrome, is the late stage infection of HIV. It is not the same thing. It occurs once your immune system is so badly damaged from the HIV continuously attacking the body. Most people in the U.S. who have been diagnosed with HIV do not develop AIDS because taking HIV medicines as prescribed stops the progression of the disease so that it doesn't damage the body more. Without medications, people with AIDS will typically survive for three years past their diagnosis. Once a dangerous illness recognizes that their immune system is compromised and takes advantage of that, the life expectancy falls to about one year without treatment. Luckily, our amazing research scientists have created very effective treatment for HIV. Once again, there is no cure, but there are ways to preserve the immune system through viral suppression. This can actually reduce the amount of HIV in the blood to a very, very low level, It can be so low that lab tests will not test positive for it. In this situation, with an undetectable virus, patients can live long and healthy lives and will not transmit their HIV to their HIV-negative partners through sex or to a fetus, which is an amazing advancement with modern science. So now that we know what it is and that it's no longer a death sentence in our day, let's look at how this virus manifests itself within the body. Within two to four weeks after infection, one might feel like they have the flu. They might have fever, sore throat, swollen lymph nodes, muscle aches, and fatigue. Obviously, just having these symptoms alone does not mean that you have HIV. Other illnesses and viruses can cause these exact symptoms as well. In this active early infection, you are the most contagious as the virus is currently running rampant and unchecked within your body. Once you move to a chronic HIV infection, it's more of an asymptomatic latent situation, like with the herpes viruses. The HIV is still active in the body, and it does continue to re- reproduce, and you would still be contagious if not treated. But this is the phase where many will stay if they are effectively treated. There comes a lot of bias with HIV and STIs in general, which totally sucks even though many of them aren't really any different than picking up the common cold from someone else. But some people believe that only certain groups of people can get HIV, or they make moral judgments about the people who are taking the steps to prevent HIV transmission, either to themselves or to another person, and some people even believe that others deserve to get HIV because of their life choices. All of these stigma and biases have a profound effect on people with HIV. They can affect the emotional well-being and mental health, and people often internalize the stigma they experience and turn that into a negative self-image, leading to feelings of shame, fear of disclosure, isolation, and despair. These feelings can prevent people from getting tested and treated for HIV, therefore continuing the transmission and the problem. We are all afraid, to some level, of HIV. Many of us have seen the grainy old videos of emaciated men dying in the early 1980s. But that is not what HIV is today, and due to its prevalence, it's incredibly important to break down misconceptions about HIV, to share information and awareness so that we stop stigmatizing people unnecessarily. One of my efforts with this podcast is to break down the barriers about talking about women's health and sex and vaginas and to stop making these topics so taboo. They are all a part of our daily lives. Why should they be spoken of only in hushed tones or when the kids leave the room? Same with HIVs and STIs. They need to be discussed openly so that it can be a normalized subject. Once it's a normalized subject, we have the opportunity to correct misconceptions and help others to learn more about the virus. And eventually, maybe we will be able to stop the spread of HIV altogether. Now, on that happy note, this first half of the STI episode is finished. For the next episode, we'll discuss some other STIs. Syphilis is a really fun one, pubic lice, aka crabs, trichomonas, hepatitis, and HPV. Now that I am back from my hiatus, the episode will be out in just two weeks, So keep your eyes and ears peeled for more good sexy infection fun. The sassy staples for today are, drumroll please, 1. There are 8 main viral and bacterial pathogens that cause STIs, 4 of which are curable, syphilis, gonorrhea, chlamydia, and trichomonas, and 4 of which are incurable, hepatitis, HIV, HPV, and herpes. Number 2. When used effectively and consistently, condoms are the best way to prevent transmission of many STIs. The STIs that are not transmitted through bodily fluids and are transmitted through skin-to-skin contact, however, are not prevented from condoms. There are also two highly effective vaccines available for two of our STIs, hepatitis B and HPV, both of which we will get to in our next episode. Hold on tight. There are over 100 different herpes viruses, and once they enter the body, there is no getting rid of them. They will live in your body as long as you do. 90% of American adults have come into contact with a herpes virus by the time they are 50 years old. HSV 1 and 2 are of the most common viruses in the United States right now. While the herpes variants themselves can be pretty benign of a diagnosis, They can lead to lifelong chronic illnesses like chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and CRPS. And lastly, HIV is no longer a death sentence. People can live long and relatively normal lives with HIV, and people of all shapes, sizes, sexual orientation, gender, race, and religion can get HIV, and we need to start breaking down the stigmas. And number five, actually. For Christmas this year, I received a rhyming vagina book, because my family knows me very, very well. So at the end of every episode, I'm going to randomly pick a page from the book for a rhyme. And today's rhyme is. Okay, I found one. My vag is a chicken nugget, an addictive snack, comes with different sauces, making lips smack. Thank you, everybody, for listening to this episode. That's all I have for you today. As always, please rate and review this podcast if you haven't. And if you love Sassy Speculum, go pick up some swag today on www.beatingheartdoula.com slash sassyspeculum, or straight from my Etsy page, the store is Beating Heart Herbs. I'll be back in two weeks to discuss the rest of STIs. Have a rad rest of your day, fam. Bye!